Anyone know that face? I'd be very impressed if you do. Uh, this, is a, this is a guy called Philippe Petit. Anybody heard that name? No, I'd never heard of him actually at all until I uh, came across him a few years ago. Now, Philippe Petit, one day, back in 1968, was sitting in a dentist's office about to go in to receive whatever treatment. Uh, obviously, he's French with a name like Philippe Petit. Uh, he was about to go into the office and receive whatever treatment the dentist had in mind for him that day when he was leafing through a newspaper uh, back in 1968. And in this newspaper, he saw some designs for some buildings that were going to be built in New York. And those buildings were two very, very tall towers. They're going to be built right next to one another, the Twin Towers. That's what they became known as. And Petit saw these uh, this projection of this proposed building that I think at that point maybe had been started, but certainly wasn't complete. And in that moment, he did, he thought what I hope nobody in this room would ever think. Here's what he thought. I must, I will climb those towers and I will lash across those towers a wire and I will walk across the wire. Okay. And here is Philippe Petit. It took him six years of preparation. He had to learn to deal with the swaying of the towers. They're designed to sway. He had to figure out how he was going to get a 200-foot wire across the towers, which he did by firing a bow. Uh, The the wire itself was 200 feet. He had to walk 130-odd feet, 138 gap between the towers. He had to figure out how to get access, how to get the heavy equipment up the towers, and in August 1974, this is what Petit did. He walked on wire between the roofs of the Twin Towers. Folks, this happened. He took eight passes in 45 minutes, 1,350 feet in the air, suspended in midair by what? By one thing, a wire. Who are these people (laughs) who do this stupid, stupid stuff? The police, by the end of it, the police were at both ends. People people on the ground were applauding him, taking pictures. The police were at both ends trying to catch him. He'd go up to them, he'd pretend to come, and then he'd turn around and go back the other way. He lay down on the wire. The police were applauding him. There was a helicopter trying to get him off. The only thing... Uh, that stopped Petit 45 minutes into his escapade was the fact that the wind was rising and he knew that he was potentially in some danger. 45 minutes after starting, he was arrested. What do you fill out on the arrest warrant? (laughs) Simply they put this, man on wire. And that was his crime. He was let off, he was given a pardon in exchange for performing in Central Park for some children which is what he did. This was an act of great bravery and courage. It was, I submit to you this morning, an act of complete and utter stupidity. But it was also an act of great faith. Petit had enormous faith in himself, in his own ability. He, he confessed that he wavered, as you would. <laughs> I mean, look at it. 
He wavered, but he had enormous faith in himself. He had enormous faith in the calculations that his team had done, but the, the distance, the length of the wire, the, the, tense, the, the tension of the wire that would be necessary, uh, the kind of wire that they'd be able to get it across, that it would hold all that stuff. He had great faith. He had great faith in his team. He had great faith in his own preparation. This was a man. This was an act of great faith. A great trust. We live in a world today in which faith is increasingly difficult. Faith in God in our day is becoming more and more difficult. The secular age, as you may have heard it referred to, is an age where belief in God, in any kind of God, but certainly in the God that Christians talk about, the kind of God who dies on a cross, the kind of God who's raised from the dead, belief in that God is contested. And we feel the contesting of belief every single day. It is strange to believe in God today. And if you're part of a university or a workplace, you will feel that. You'll feel, you'll feel an unspoken pressure not to speak out, not to hold faith. This is, this is the age, in the words of James Smith, where believers are tempted to doubt and doubters are tempted to believe. Other people have called it a post-Christian age. That means that uh, there is an attempt in our day to continue, if you like, the Christian project on all the good stuff that comes with Christianity. An emphasis on justice, uh, a conversation around peace, uh, equality, freedom, all these va- tolerance even, a word that I despise, but all of these values which actually emerge and are in our current culture, which actually emerge from a Christian understanding. There is not an effort to, in the post-Christian age to continue that conversation, but to deny, to resist the foundations from which those things emerge. It is, if you like, an attempt to have the kingdom of God without the king. That is the age in which we now live today. And that's the age in which faith is contested. And so I think that we see this all over our culture. We want peace. We want peace, but we don't know how to practice prayer. We want pleasure, but we don't want it in reference to the God who designed and created it. We want sexual intimacy, but we don't want to... Stay within the boundaries that God provides. We want the life of the kingdom without the death of discipleship. And so I think Petit, let's see him again, Gaz. I think Petit and his walk is a metaphor for what it feels like to have faith in God today. Let's see him on the wire. It's like balancing on a wire. 1,350 feet above ground, knowing that one false move and you're gone. That's what it feels like. And here's the thing. We can't get to where we want to go. The other side, if you like, is an image of the future kingdom where we don't have to have faith any longer where it's certain, where we can stand on solid ground, the solid ground of seeing God. Behind us is the age which is no longer open to us, an age in which all people seem to have confidence in God. We can't go back and we can't go 
all the way forward. And here we are between the two, men and women walking on the wire. Not a bad metaphor for our lives as followers of Jesus. It's not a bad metaphor for where the church is at, where Christian belief is at in our culture. The question I want to ask today is how in this environment can we have faith? And out of that question come two other questions. What the heck is faith? And how can we grow in our faith? What is faith? Let's start there. The first thing we see is that faith is central to what Jesus teaches about the kingdom of God. You remember last week, if you were here, I talked about the kingdom of God and the fact that Jesus' central message is this. The kingdom is available. The time has come, he said. This is Mark's gospel. Last week, we looked at Matthew. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent. That's the first message. Last week, we see that in Matthew's gospel. Repent. It means change your way of thinking. It means turn around. It means go back. Return to Jesus that because the kingdom of God is available, that means God is taking charge. And he's doing it through Jesus. What Mark does differently to Matthew is he, he includes this second part. Repent, go back, and then go forward, believe. Mark includes this concept of faith. Somehow, faith, whatever it is, is central to seizing hold of this kingdom life. This life of justice. This life of peace. This life of following Jesus. Somehow faith is right at the heart of it. So faith is central to the kingdom of God. Repent and believe. What? Believe what? Believe the good news. Believe the gospel. That's the sort of technical term. Believe the announcement. Believe. What is the gospel? The gospel is this. It's the announcement that the kingdom is near. So to have faith is simply to trust this announcement, to trust that Jesus wasn't telling pork pies, that he was telling the truth. Bit of rhyming slang for those of you from the southeast there. That Jesus was telling the truth, that it really is true, that the kingdom of God is at hand, that in Jesus, God's kingdom is available. That's what it means to believe the good news. But secondly, to believe, not just that the kingdom is available, but to believe that the way to the kingdom is following the king, is giving your life to the king, is offering yourself, your body, your mind, your past, your present, your future to the king. It's in submitting your life and your identity and everything else about you that you think is important and all the things you think that aren't to him. And saying, this is yours. Do with it as you please. That's what it means to repent and believe. And so we see that faith is the doorway, if you like, to the kingdom of God. Just as you stepped in out of the snowy Nottingham streets today through the tasteful dark green doorway and were welcomed into a slightly warmer environment in which coffee was flowing, cake was abounding, you tasted a sense, I know, of the kingdom of God in that welcome. And the green doorway was your passageway into that life. So faith becomes the door into an experience of the kingdom of God and the King Jesus. Faith 
is the doorway. And we see this through the Gospels. We see time and time again, we saw one picture, didn't we, the centurion, where faith is like the operating uh, aspect of the kingdom of God. This centurion says, look, I don't need to, I need to come with me, Jesus. Just command my servant to be well and they'll be well. And Jesus said, I've not seen faith like this in all of Israel. It'll go on your way, it'll be done for you. And in that hour, the centurion's servant was healed. It's like faith opens up a doorway for God to move. And we've seen that in this community. Where people open themselves to God in just a tiny way. They just leave the door. How how much space does God need to get through the door? Not a heck of a lot is the answer. Just sometimes the door is just slightly ajar. Somebody in a moment of crisis and trauma opens up the possibility. They drive into the countryside and they shout, God, if you're out there, speak to me. The door is just cracked open and God just (laughs) blitzes his way through it. What is faith? What is the kind of faith that God needs? I think sometimes faith, we... Maybe a good synonym will be trust. You know, we have faith. Philippe Petit. Trust, right? It's a good one. Trust in the wire. Trust in his own ability. Trust in his friends. Faith is trust. Confidence, if you like. Faith is trust. It's confidence in God. The centurion had great confidence. Trust in God. But sometimes faith is... It's not even become trust yet. It's before trust. Sometimes faith is just desperation. Sometimes we don't even, our our faith hasn't even been formed, so it looks good. Because, you know, we all want the kind of faith which is trust and confidence in God. But sometimes it's it's not even that pretty. Sometimes faith is a woman uh, a woman who's been bleeding for 12 years, who, who can't go into public and social spaces because she's seen as being unclean, who can't go into the temple, who can't worship, who's not allowed to touch anybody. It's a woman crawling on her hands and knees to Jesus and crying out in a brokenness. Make me clean. And this is what happens in Matthew chapter 9. This woman, this woman who's been hemorrhaging for 12 long years. She spent every cent, every penny she has on getting well. And who is worse off than she was before. Who's probably ravaged by mental and social illness. Stigma attached to her. Who doesn't have the confidence, the faith to stand in social places is desperate enough to crawl on her hands and knees to Jesus. And Jesus says, that is faith. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look pretty. It's even slightly embarrassing, isn't it? Being on your hands and knees and desperate, nobody wants to be there. And yet Jesus says, faith, daughter, today, you're made well. Yeah, I love it, Jesus. I love, I love that kind of faith. Faith is trust, confidence. Faith is desperation. I don't know what kind of faith you've got today. Maybe it looks like the fully matured confidence. You've been journeying with Jesus for a long time. Life is going well. And you're confident today. God bless you. Awesome. What a wonderful thing. What a gift. It is a gift. You didn't earn it. What a gift. Praise God for that. I praise God for that on your behalf. Maybe you are here hanging by a freaking thread. 
you know what? You're here. You're here. God is at work in your life. You have faith. It is a gift. You belong in God's presence. That is faith. That is faith. The important thing about faith is not the quality of the faith. It's not the quantity of the faith. It's where the faith leads us. To whom shall we go? Peter says, you have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Faith leads us to Jesus. That's what matters. It's not how strongly we hold it. It's how strongly we're held. Now, very often this faith exists in the absence of evidence. (laughs) Hebrews 11, verse 1. This is one of my, by the way, this is one of my favorite chapters in all of Scripture. I just, oh, it's amazing. It was a real struggle not to get Craig to read it all the way through and then read it again. So we start with just 17 verses. It's a real struggle to start. But here we go, verse 1 of Hebrews 11. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. Faith has this um, aspect to it, which is about believing in the unseen. And there's an element of that to faith, to biblical faith. And yet the world says the opposite, right? Seeing is believing. That is materialism. Materialism is the, is the uh, belief that what is, what is real is what you can see. It must be provable. If you can't see it under a microscope, under a test tube, in a test tube, then it ain't real. And so presumably we'd have to exclude things like love, which can't be seen in a lab. And yet the Bible says, no, materialism doesn't do it because there are things which are real. In fact, there are things which are real that make the things which can be seen more real that can't be seen. Faith is confidence. It's hope in what we don't see. 2 Corinthians 5, 7, Paul writes this, we live by faith, not by sight. Uh, The author of Hebrews says, without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is is often in the absence of evidence. And we need to understand this. We make choices of faith every day. You might be here saying, I don't have faith. Trust me, you have faith. Right now, you are exhibiting, I'm looking at you right now, I'm seeing, all I'm seeing is faith. Here you are sitting on those chairs. How do you know they're going to hold you? How do you know I didn't come in and saw every one of them through the night painstakingly so you would embarrassingly fall into the carpet? How do you know I didn't do that? How do you know that the coffee isn't spiked? How do, this is probably not a good line to go down. <laughs> Where's my coffee? It, it isn't, by the way. How do, you, how do you know? How do you know your car brakes aren't going to fail? You don't. You have no idea. You act in faith. It's not possible to be a human being and not live with faith. You have faith. The question, of course, is always where is your faith located? So faith brings the kingdom. It's a doorway into the kingdom. And yes, faith is about its content. It's about what we believe. You know, the church has said the creeds throughout history because what we believe matters. In Hebrews 11, we see this in verse 2. By faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command, so that what is seen is not made, was not made, excuse me, out of what was visible. There is content to our faith. That is a part of faith. Faith is 
about what we believe. It's about believing certain things to have happened. Yes, the death of Jesus, the resurrection, these are all important things we're going to be talking about in the coming weeks. But it's also about believing certain things to be true about who God is. And I think that I just want to say something about this. This is one area I think we've seen, uh, we do see today, great contest. Not just around things that God was said to have done, such as creating the world and the resurrection of Jesus and those things, although there is certainly contesting around that. But I think we see a huge contest in our culture and even within the church around the identity of God. Questions particularly around, is he good? Is he good? Is he powerful? Is he loving? These are areas where there is a great contest. So faith is about the content of our belief, but it's also about what we do in response. It's also about what we do in response. Faith is a verb. It's a doing word. It's an active principle. We see this all the way through Hebrews 11. The conversation about Abraham. You may know the story of Abraham. Wandering about in the wilderness, doing not very much. And God shows up and says a promise. He gives Abraham a promise. In fact, he repeats the promise as if Abraham's going to miss it five times. And the promise is he'll be blessed. He says it five times. One time for every time the word curse has been used between Genesis 3 and Genesis 12 where Abraham is met by God. What God is promising Abraham is that he is going to reverse the curse in creation through Abraham. He's going to bless him. He's going to have generation after generation of blessing in his family. And Abraham stands there and said, God, I am childless. My wife is barren. She's old. I'm old. How could this possibly happen? And yet, God says, Abraham, go. And Abraham trusts God. He has faith, confidence that God's telling him the truth. And so he goes. Abraham's faith is active. It's, you could say his faith is his going without knowing. In the midst, in the absence of uh, Complete confidence, he goes anyway, steps forward. That's what faith is. And because faith is about action, faith is a verb. And we see this in James. This is incredibly powerful and uh, statement that James gives. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith and has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace. Keep warm and well fed. Christian platitudes. Bumper sticker faith. But does nothing about their physical needs. What good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Faith is not a work. It's not something we do to please God. And yet... Real faith always works its way out. It is faith in the invisible, but it always becomes visible in some way. It's always visible to God. Most visible in terms of how we love our neighbor. Therefore, faith is about a way of life. Faith is ultimately a way of life. That's the other dimension of faith. It's confidence, it's trust, it's desperation. It's the doorway into the kingdom. It is also about a way of life. And it's about a way of life that leads to life. Jesus says this in Matthew's gospel. Enter through the narrow gate. 
Sounds a bit like a wire, this. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Only a few, says Jesus, walk the wire. So that's what faith is, or something of what faith is. And I've, I missed out a few, couple of thousand pages of the Bible. That was sort of my best pricey. <laughs> The question I want to close with is how can we deepen it? If faith is in part, yes, it's a gift, but if faith is also something we walk out, if it is a way of life, how can we deepen our confidence? How how can we improve our wire walking? Well, I think we have to focus here on not what, but who. Faith ultimately is not about what we believe, although that has a role. It is about who we know. It is about who we believe in. And so we need to work on developing confidence, personal confidence in Jesus. That's how we deepen our faith. I read a book recently. I've, I've witted on about this to our staff team at great length. And I thought I really must share it with the wider congregation. Uh, I met through a book, a new hero, his name's Scott Kelly. There he is. Hi, Scott. You don't know me, Scott, but I love you. <laughs> is it too soon to say that? Uh, Scott Kelly spent a year in space on the International Space Station. A, ye- a year. As I said before, who are these people? A year. I mean, you read the book, and it's, the book is about his year in space. He's an identical twin, and part of the reason he went... Uh, is because they wanted to do comparative studies about uh, twins on the ground versus twins in space. And now here's the deal. Um, A year in space really isn't very good for you. But the reason they sent him up is because people are interested, in fact, lots of people are interested in in going to Mars. Don't ask me why anybody would want to go to Mars. Very happy here on Earth. The, The sort of terrestrial thing is working fine for me but certain people want to go to Mars maybe to figure out if, how house building would happen if we run out of space in Edwalton or somewhere, I don't know, where they're building houses but uh, anyway, the point is Scott Kelly went to space for a year to figure out what it would be like to have an extended period of time in space what would be the physiological benefits, or rather benefits, detriment to human life, and one of the particularly Powerful things that Kelly talks about is his sensitivity to the air around him. He developed over the course of that year a very, very minute sensitivity to the levels of carbon dioxide in uh, the International Space Station. When there were more people there, because every so often people would be fired up in a rocket, other people would go back. It was like, it's like this little cosmic exchange trip. Anyway, you've got people doing this, and when more people are on the space station, there was more carbon dioxide. That's not surprising. We breathe in oxygen. We exp- I don't need to do that, do I? <clears throat> That's what happens when people are around. And he became so sensitive to, us, to it, and he started to get headaches if there was more carbon dioxide around. And there were these two, uh, two on the space station, these two uh, pieces of equipment. Their job was to filter carbon dioxide and release oxygen. They were called cedras. And when they were broken, he'd have to fix them. And, and he hated it when they were broken. Here's the point. Faith is the air we breathe. Faith is the air that's all around us. And the air we breathe matters. particularly if you're thinking about being in a space or a place for a long period of time. 
This is why you need to choose your relationships well. Because the air we breathe makes a difference. The physiological consequences of a tiny amount of elevated carbon dioxide in a year is massive. How do we ensure that we're breathing the right air? How This is how we will grow in faith. How can we breathe better? I want to say some really simple things in the next three or four minutes. None of this is going to be new to you. None of it. But part of the way we need to grow faith, we need to breathe better air, is by focusing, by centering our lives on prayer. Prayer is the air we breathe. A friend of mine said this to me recently, the most revolutionary thing we could do today in our culture would be, as we wake up in the morning, before we touch our phone, our idol, I mean our iPhone, before we touch our phone, To go somewhere quiet, to sit with God, to read a psalm, and just to spend a few minutes before God. To do that every day, before we touch our phone, before on Instagram, before Facebook, whatever else we do on our phone, checking our text messages, WhatsApp, that's what I do. Before we do that, just to be with God. If we did that every day for the rest of our lives, that would have a massive, massive effect. Tiny things projected over the course of a lifespan massively impact the air we breathe. There's one possibility, prayer. What might that look like for you? What about worship? What about coming to worship God with other people once a week? Doing this once a week. Preaching to the choir here, I know. But the value of that, not week in week, you're probably going to go away this morning thinking, oh, it was just sort of average. Johnny was, uh, he was okay, wasn't he? He had some good things to say. Didn't like it when he said he was going to stone the people that prayed for, for, for snow or whatever else. You know, we're going to think we're going to think certain things about the worship, about the, the teaching, whatever it is, the coffee, maybe we're slightly less warm than we'd like it or whatever. We might not have a life-changing moment this morning, but what about if we did this every week for the rest of our lives? We gathered in the presence of God. We came and presented ourselves to God and we offered ourselves to Him in worship in a lifetime that makes a massive difference prayer worship community i'm not talking about making a holy huddle here that is not healthy we need lots of different kinds of air but what about if we made it our practice to share a meal with other people who love jesus or who are desperate for him they don't even know have to have it together but are they figure what about if we did that once a week for the rest of our lives What an encouragement that might be. And then we were able to care for each other when we were struggling and help each other out a bit and receive from people when we are struggling. Community. What about scripture? What about if we grew, made it our intent, intent, not just for a month or for a week, but for a lifetime to grow in our understanding of the scriptures? To read it little and often, folks. And also to build our lives and to base our lives around the scripture. What about Sabbath? What about rest? What about in a world that is addicted to activity? We said for 24 hours a week, every week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rest. I'm not talking about a day off. I'm talking about a day to cease and desist from activity. To root myself in God's presence. To do only that which brings me joy. What about if we did that for the rest of our lives?
These are some of the ways we can breathe better air. What is at stake, church? The kingdom is at stake. The kingdom of God in our lives is at stake. Faith is the doorway to the kingdom and the kingdom of God in our city. Steve Addison said, great movements begin with white hot faith. I want white hot faith. I want us to be a place where it's possible at least to develop and discover deeper faith. Where is your faith this morning? You have faith. Here you are. Desperate, confident, however you're here, you have faith. Somebody is on your case. God is at work in your lives. It doesn't do us any good to compare with other people. Philippe Petit, if he'd spent his time along the wire, looking to the side to see somebody else's wire, I don't think anybody else was at that altitude, but let's just suppose there was somebody else. That wouldn't have done him any good. He'd probably have fallen off within seconds. No, the key thing is to stay focused on the walk that you have ahead of you. To keep walking, to keep thanking God for the faith that you have and the things that he's doing in your lives. Sometimes, though, it feels as if we are walking on the high wire. And this, I think, is where the metaphor breaks down. And any slip will lead to catastrophic failure and death. And yet, this is not the biblical picture of faith. Faith is not something that if we get it wrong once, we're screwed, we're done, we're finished, it's ended. That is not the picture. In fact, the biblical picture is something quite different. I love this picture I found from a circus. And here we have an expert who's walked the wire before, who's skilled, who's already done their apprenticeship, walking on the wire, holding the hand of the child who's just learning. We are children in this, every one of us. Whether you've been doing this for 50 years, whether you've been in this room five minutes, we're all of us novices. And somebody is with us, somebody who knows the way to walk the wire, somebody who's walked it before, and who knows how to walk it with us. Somebody is with us, helping us walk. Ultimately, faith is not about our ability to walk the wire. Faith is about being held by somebody who knows better than us. Someone far greater, someone who has skill and the capacity and the patience and the love and the kindness and the mercy to teach us how to walk in the way to life. Why don't we stand? And we're just going to ask this morning uh, for more faith.